You know, one of my uh, heroes as a, just as a Christian uh, is Billy Graham. I'm so thankful for his, his legacy, uh, Billy Graham's legacy. And uh, in 1949, that was really the, the what uh, catapulted uh, Billy Graham uh, revival tent meeting in Los Angeles and the newspapers, uh, the Hearst newspaper chain that was big at that time, picked it up and made it a national story. And Billy Graham uh, might not have been the evangelist that we know uh, had it not been for him working through a period of doubt, a crisis of faith. Uh, A couple of months before the Los Angeles revival in 1949, that was the launching of his ministry that the Holy Spirit used. He was speaking at a college retreat in Southern California. And at this time, Billy Graham was an evangelist with Youth for Christ. Uh, Bill Bright, who went on later went on to uh, found a Campus Crusade called Crew now. Uh, Youth for Christ was a major uh, force in the post-war America time of preaching the gospel. And Billy Graham was one of the evangelists. And there was another evangelist uh, by the name of Charles Templeton that many considered him to be actually a better preacher than Billy Graham. And Charles Templeton uh, began to struggle and wrestle with some of the uh, questions of Christianity and realized that he wanted to know more, and he decided he would go back uh, to seminary. But unfortunately, he chose a school that denied the authority of Scripture and questioned the authenticity of the deity of Christ because he was finding that uh, some of the old, quote-unquote, old-fashioned methods that uh, Billy Graham was preaching and uh, his generation, uh, they were outdated and out, out, uh, uh, out of style. And so he wanted a much more intellectually satisfying approach. And he kind of chided Graham that, uh, you know, that style of preaching and ministry was out of date and he should be willing to explore uh, the roots of, of his faith and as Templeton was doing. And Billy Graham really uh, began to doubt a little bit himself. He, he said that in his biography, he said, I did not doubt the deity of Christ. I did not doubt the person of who Jesus was I, um, or the validity of the gospel. Uh, but he said, but I really began to question, and through Templeton's uh, prodding and others, was whether the Bible was completely true. I had doubts about that. And as this major eight-week Los Angeles tent uh, campaign, big tents were very big back then, and thousands could be seated in those, he was, uh, began, said, you know, I really need to come to grips with this question on the authority and authenticity of the Bible because how can I get up there and preach something that I don't believe, that I question and I have doubts? And so uh, if, I, if I can't get this satisfied, I'll have to call off this crusade and get out of the ministry. Well, just hold that there. I'm going to come back to that story uh, a little bit towards the end. Some of you have heard this before. But I am, uh, you know, struck, and maybe you are too, that the great Billy Graham, who we, if you know him and know of him, uh, admire him, the fact that he uh, really preached the gospel to more people than any person who has ever lived in history. 
It's pretty amazing when you think about that. No one has preached to more people uh, than Billy Graham. And no, no one has seen more people make a profession of faith in Christ than Billy Graham and the ministry of his team. And so, but that almost didn't take place. That almost didn't happen uh, as he was struggling with this doubt. And this morning, we're going to talk about doubt. The title of today's message is Dealing with Doubt. And we're going to use John 20 as kind of a, a, a little pattern here to, to look at this issue of dealing with doubt. I'll raise your hand, but if you've been a Christian for 10 minutes, you've struggled with doubt. And I'm talking about spiritual doubt. Uh, I'm talking about spiritual doubt, wrestling with issues of doubt in our own life. Uh, sometimes we doubt uh, our salvation. We wonder, am I really a Christian? Am I really a believer? Sometimes we might doubt, has, does God really love me? Uh, has he really forgiven me? I mean, if does God really know all the terrible stuff I've done? Can he really forgive me? Uh, we question, maybe doubt, is you know, Jesus the uh, only way to God? Is there other, uh, is there other paths? Uh, we have doubts, spiritual doubts of a lot of different things, the Bible. And we may go in through seasons where some things are more doubtful than others. Uh, right now, we might say, God, are you really in charge? Are you really in control? Because things seem to be kind of chaotic. Well, one of the most famous doubters in the Bible was Thomas. He, if you look up his name, Google his name, or I think some dictionaries, they always label him as what? Doubting Thomas. And the poor guy has lived with that, you know, throughout church history. But I want us to look in John 20. We're going to read John 20 in just a moment. It'll be on the screen when I, in just a second. But Thomas, as you know, was a disciple of Jesus. Later became an apostle. He was a disciple of Jesus. He was a fisherman. And this uh, setting in John 20 takes place before Jesus ascended, uh, returned back to heaven. This is during that 40-day period following the resurrection and where we find in Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascended to heaven. Remember chapter 4, not chapter 40, but in that 40 days, um, Acts 1 reminds us that this was a period of time that Jesus was showing um, and demonstrating proofs of his resurrection. He was uh, teaching about the kingdom of God. So this is taking place in that period, and it's very close to uh, the actual resurrection event itself where we pick it up, maybe within days of where this particular encounter takes place. And Jesus had been with the disciples. He had shown himself. Remember, the, the, the disciples, we kind of rag on Thomas, but they were all hiding in their houses, fearful, all right? So we kind of put Thomas kind of, you know, kind of in a category, but those other guys you know, they were all worried about their own lives as well. So that's kind of where we're going to pick it up. And if you have your Bible, I hope you brought your Bible. It's a good way to learn the Bible. Uh, bring it, follow. And uh, if you didn't, uh, it'll be on the screen for you to, to follow along. But we're going to pick up in verse John 20, verse 24, and I'm going to read through verse 31, okay? Now, Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came, where he previously met with the other disciples. 
The other disciples said to him, said to Thomas, we have seen the Lord. So he, Thomas, said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my fingers into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst of them and said, Peace to you. Then Jesus said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, the things that are written, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray before we uh, unpack this a little bit today. Gracious Father, how we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you that this uh, scripture is a light to our path, a lamp to our feet that gives us guidance, gives us wise counsel. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be that which is pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Give us ears to hear what your Spirit says to the church. We pray in your name. Everyone said, Amen or Oh Me, as my uncle used to say. All right, let's, let's, uh, we're going to, this morning, we're going to talk about this dealing with doubt. And I want to do it by just looking at uh, seven principles. And we're going to go through these fairly quickly, so we won't be here till three o'clock. But I want us to look at seven principles from God's Word, and, uh, and I think that'll, again, this is going to be a general uh, teaching on dealing with doubt. We're not going to cover and satisfy specific things, but give some general principles. Maybe you're not in a, and have never been in any kind of spiritual doubt. You've just, well, you know, it's never been an issue for you, and then you may be like, Some were even, you know, many times where you've grappled with certain subjects and issues where you just really needed to know. And these are more general principles, but at the same time, you may know somebody who's struggling with some spiritual doubt. And these uh, are helpful, I think, in giving some guidance as maybe a template to work from. So this morning, uh, we're going to look at these principles from the Word of the Lord. Number one, and these are all just single words with the principle. <clears throat> Number one is patience. Number one is patience. Be patient with those who doubt. Jude, verse 22. Jude is only one chapter. Uh, and verse 22 says, Have mercy on those who doubt. Jude is, of course, you know, Jude is, uh, speaks about defending the faith and knowing what you believe and And he says, have mercy on those who doubt, which implies that there are people within the church in the context uh, that we're dealing, talking to Christians basically, are those who struggle with doubt. One of the things that is not helpful 
is when Christians make judgments upon people that are going through and struggling with questions and doubt. We can uh, sadly become very arrogant and obnoxious uh, and think, well, you know, the, uh, you know and instead of comforting them and building them up, uh, we're doing the opposite. Thomas, what I find interesting, remember that when everybody is gathered, Thomas is not there. Is that, you know, that, remember the disciples experienced profound disappointment. They thought Jesus was dead. They thought he was dead, and this three-and-a-half-year project is done. It's over with. Remember Peter? He went back to his old job, fishing. I mean, they just thought, so it could have been that, a disappointment. But we find here that he reconnects with the group, and uh, now there's even a, a further separation because the others have experienced something that he didn't. You know, sometimes that can take place. You should have been here. Oh, you should have seen it. And immediately you just you feel left out. Uh, what he did was, and I think this is interesting, is he, can, he basically shared his doubt openly when they said, we have seen the Lord. And he shared his doubt. He said in verse 25, the other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. And Thomas said, unless I see proof, and you see what he says there, unless I see actual proof, in other words, I've got to touch, I've got to feel it, I will not believe. Now, but I want you to notice here, under this principle of patience, of being merciful with those who doubt, is that notice that no one ridiculed him or attacked him. Notice that. Notice nobody said, Thomas, come on, man. You know, get with, you know, we always thought you were not too spiritual, and now you're just proving it. I mean, nobody attacked him. Nobody ridiculed him. They could have just celebrated the fact that they were special. We must be somebody very special because, you know, Jesus came to us, and he left you out. Sorry, you're not of the elect, so you missed out, right? No, they didn't say that. That's not what happened. And it almost, verse 25, implies that they reached out to him in some way because uh, they, they, they made sure that he understood what was taking place. But this doubt that Thomas has, going back to our principle, it did not break the relationship with his Christian friends. It didn't break that relationship. And here he's going through doubt. And we have to ask ourselves, when people and friends struggle with doubt... How do, we, how do we help them? Are we shepherding through some, some things in their life instead of getting frustrated and saying, I can't believe you don't know this. I can't believe you haven't read this book. I can't believe that you've been a Christian this long and you're asking me these questions. That is not helpful. Hello? It says be merciful on those who doubt. That's, as a Christian community, that's our... That's our uh, instruction there. Verse 26, notice a week later what we see. A week later, after eight days, his disciples were again inside. And guess who's with his friends? What does it say? And Thomas was with them. Now, he had to go a whole eight days. It wasn't like Jesus just popped in through the door and waved at him, and, you know, that would have been it. But he had to kind of go through this eight days 
of questioning and doubting, maybe sitting around talking to the disciple and said, oh, okay, I know you told me not to bring it up again, but I, listen, I can't believe it. He's alive. You know, and Thomas is like, I am sick of hearing this. Okay, I wasn't there. I get it. We don't see any isolation. Thomas is back there, so we are to be patient with those who doubt. Secondly, second principle is the word process. Doubt, I think this is really important. Doubt is often the process for a deepening faith, for a deeper faith. Instead of staying in doubt, doubt becomes like the bridge for a deeper understanding. Now, there's two different approaches, uh, and how we work through these uh, will affect whether this is an effective process for growing in our faith. And when we face doubt, it can be, it can be permanent. We just kind of park there and say, well, I, I'm abandoning the faith because I can't, I can't move beyond these, these uh, questions I have. And it really kind of becomes more of an excuse and a, and a little hidden smokescreen uh, when we really don't want to obey God, sometimes. So it can be permanent or it can be a process where, as I said, it becomes this bridge that God uses in my life and in your life where we grow, where we, where we, where we grow in and move into a deeper understanding of something that, that was causing us great concern. So it can be a process. Think about Scripture. Think about Job. Remember Job? If you know anything about the Job and how he threw his questions at God and why God was allowing this, and ultimately we find that what's interesting is not all his questions were satisfied. If you read the book of Job, God never really explains himself. Habakkuk's like that. Habakkuk has a lot of, couple of questions, and God never really explains him. You know, I've heard people say arrogantly, when I get to heaven, God's going to have to answer for this. Oh, my goodness, who do you think you're talking about? It can be a process, this, this issue that we're struggling with. What about the Psalms? There's a lot of doubting that we see in the Psalms. David, right? And others that, that they're questioning, God, where are you? What are you doing? Thomas did not say that he would not believe. He simply said that he needed, he needed more. He needed more info, all right? Uh, process moving from the doubt to growing deeper in our faith. One, one great example in Scripture is John the Baptist. Not John the Southern Baptist, they just John the Baptist, all right? The baptizer, right? Now, you know about John. Now, don't confuse him with John the Apostle, okay? Don't, this is John the Baptizer, cousin of Jesus. And he entered the scene and began to call people to repentance. Remember that? He's down at the River Jordan, and he's baptizing, and he's calling people to repentance. Why? He's preparing the way for the Messiah, and he sees Jesus and said, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, John, uh, he began to kind of speak out <laughs> with some of the uh, corruption in the power uh, structures, if you will, of the culture and the government, and they imprisoned him. They put him in jail. Herod Antipas, who was, uh, was kind of like the governor of Judea, put him in jail, put him in prison, teach him a lesson. And it is in this time of being in prison 
that John began to question whether Jesus was really the Messiah. Here he is in prison. Pretty depressing. Pretty troubling. Here I'm out serving God, and where do I wind up? I wind up in prison. And it's in this time that John begins to question, is Jesus really the Messiah? And I'm sure his mind is saying, you know, I've seen him grow up. He's his cousin. And like, maybe I got it all wrong. Maybe this whole mess is because I really missed it. And he begins to doubt. And John sends two of his followers, his disciples, to go find Jesus and ask him the question, are you, because John sends them from prison to ask Jesus, are you really the Messiah? John is in prison, and he suspects he may never get out, and we know he doesn't. And they ask him, are you really the Messiah? We're going to take that back to John. And Jesus said in Matthew, it's on the screen, Matthew 11, this is Jesus' answer. And Jesus, this is from the New Living Translation, Jesus told them, these disciples of John, go back to John and tell him what you have heard and seen. Verse 5, the blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news, the gospel, is being preached to the poor. Now, you might on the surface, we might say, well, that didn't really say anything. John knew what he was saying because Jesus is affirming the messianic prophecy of Isaiah 29 and Isaiah 35, the same identical language of characteristics of what the Messiah is going to look like and what he's going to do. And Jesus is saying, that's me. That's me. John gets it. John gets it. So what's the bottom line here? Is that John found himself in, with doubts. He found him in two minds. But here's the point. A process that John didn't park there. This was not a permanent place. He used it to move into a deeper understanding of Christ. And I think that's important for us to remember. Thirdly, doubt, while doubt is often the process God uses to push us deeper in our faith, thirdly, is perspective. Perspective. Have you realized that our perspective or our knowledge of this life is going to be limited? Do you know everything there is possible to know in this life? You drove, many of you drove in an automobile, automobile you have no clue of how it works. But that didn't hinder you from getting here, Right? Well, I, if I can't know, I'm not going to believe. Well, you don't do that with anything else. Let's just realize that our knowledge on this side of heaven is going to be limited, right? It's going to be limited. That's our perspective. Remember Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, 12? Remember what he says? For now, presently, we see in a mirror, what? Dimly. We, we see it, we can, we're kind of like the man that was in that process of healing by Jesus' eyes where he said, I see men walking as trees. And Jesus is like, all right, let's keep working on it. You know? uh, in other words, we, we, we see shadows of images and we see little nuances of God's work, but we don't see it perfectly. But one day for the believer, what does it say? Now we see it like in a mirror dimly, like the windows that aren't clean, but then, what is then? That means one day, when we move from this life 
into permanent life with Christ in heaven, then face to face. He said, I now, now, I know in part, but then, but then, say then, but then. We're not at the then, we're in the now. We're not then, we're in the now. But then I shall know just as I am also known. There's going to be great clarity. Now, same verse, but look at the New Living Translation. I forgot I had it up there. I shouldn't have spent so much time on that. But just look at it. I like the New Living Translation. He says the same verse, just different translation. Now we see things imperfectly like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then we will see everything with perfect clarity All that I know now is partial and incomplete. But then I will know everything completely just as God knows me completely. Just as God knows now knows me completely. Author Mark Buchanan, I kept going back and forth of whether I should put this in, but it was so good. I thought about rewriting it, and then you'd think I was really bright and smart, but then I thought, no, i got to be honest and give credit where credit is due. But this is really helpful. Mark Buchanan, a former pastor and author, and he's written a book called The Benefit of the Doubt. But listen to what he says here, and this is in that, this, this, is in that, this perspective. Listen to what he says. It'll be on the screen, so just follow And I really wasn't sure where to put it in, but it seemed to kind of fit here. He said, here lies the basic flaw of all doubt. Again, limited knowledge. Here lies the basic flaw of all doubt. Doubt can never really be satisfied. No evidence is fully, finally enough. Doubt wants to consume, never consummate. It clamors endlessly for an answer and so drowns out any answer that might be given. It demands proof, but will doubt the proof that is given. Doubt then, listen to what he says, doubt then can become an appetite gone wrong. Its craving increases the more we try to fill it. Christ's concluding words to Thomas are not so much an endorsement of just mere belief, as a warning that the quest for proof is not the path of blessedness. Remember Jesus said, blessed because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying that this this quest that I have to have everything fully satisfied, I have to have every T crossed, every I doubted or I'm not going any further can become a smokescreen and never be satisfied when really the issue isn't doubt, but it's just pure unbelief. He gives that warning. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things, the secret things belong to the Lord our God And those things which are revealed, you see it? They're secret things that only God knows. And then there are things that are revealed that belong to us. Our perspective this side of heaven will be limited. Fourthly is prioritize. Prioritize. Prioritize keeping 
the main things, the main things. Prioritize. Now, this won't be on the screen, but you may want to make a note of it. In 1 Corinthians 15.3, Paul begins that by writing in verse 3, 15.3, and it several verses that go there. He writes, beginning, in saying that, that he's writing them of things of first importance. And if you read that, he's writing about the, the cross, the atonement, the resurrection. He's giving some, some things that are, should be prioritized of faith. You with me? 1 Corinthians 15, you can read it another time. There are some truths that are of first importance. There are some truths that are of utmost priority because like that Jenga game. Anybody ever played Jenga? Know what that is? It's not a new exercise down at the Y. Jenga, you know, and you have the little pieces of wood and you pull them all out and you pull out the one and everything collapses and, of course, that is the person who loses. Well, there are some things that are, that are the key cornerstones that you remove these Christianity collapses. You, you, these are, these are must-have. These are the things of first importance. And so when we're wrestling through doubt, we've got to ask and evaluate, am I wrestling with things that are of utmost priority, or am I going down these side roads that are not priority teachings of Christianity? And sometimes those lines can get blurred, right? Because sometimes things that I thought were really vital through the years, I'm like, you know, I'm not sure they're as vital as I thought they were, but there are some things that are really crucial. Now, I'm not going to spend much time on this, but I just found this helpful and throw it in here, and I think it might deserve a time to teach it. But I, I found this helpful. This is four levels of considering Bible issues or doctrine, okay? Look at this on the screen. There are things to die for. Those are essentials. Those are the non-negotiables. That's the person of Christ, the deity of Christ, the authority of Scripture, uh, the virgin birth. In other words, those are those things that you pull these out, you don't have Christianity, historic, apostolic Christianity. You hear what I'm saying? These are the hills you die on, okay? Not whether you have long wooden pews or individual seats. That's not a hill to die on, all right? You may feel like you're dying on a wooden seat, but, but these are things to die for, okay? Then another level, there are things to divide for. And I, and I have this where it says can't work together. What I mean by that, there are some things within the broader spectrum of Christianity that there are some groups and um, expressions and traditions that by their, by their uh, certain uh, traditions or views or even decisions, they have made, uh, they have things in which I cannot work with them. Now, I'm not saying I might not work with them at a pro-life event or something like that. I'm just saying there's a reason you're here and you're not in mass today. You hear what I'm saying? There are some ecclesiastical bodies, denominations, that have made decisions on certain moral issues that I cannot in good conscience adhere and join myself to. On gender issues and same-sex issues, to me, they have left the ranch. And I, am, I cannot join with them. I'm not, I'm not in a position to judge 
their hearts, but I will divide over those issues. You with me? Then there are some things that are to debate for. There are things that we debate for. Things that the person that originated this says, they're things that we growl. You know, these are really big deals to me, but we still love each other. We're still going to buy each other lunch every once in a while. We're not going to divide over it, but they're real issues. And I kind of put you know, the whole, you know, charismatic issues and tongues and some of those areas I put in this category. We're just going to have disagreement. The various roles of women, we're going to have some disagreements. We're going to see things and understand things differently. Calvinism and Arminianism, well, we're never going to solve that. Now, does it mean we just throw our hands up and say, well, we should never look at the Bible on any of these issues, the second coming of Christ? You know, we're not going to divide over whether the rapture occurs before the tribulation, mid-tribulation, to the end of tribulation. We're not going to divide over these things. These are things that we may feel very strongly about. We may debate vigorously about. But when the day is done, we're still going to love each other and be brothers and sisters. Is that okay? Okay? And then there's things to decide for. That's kind of, who cares? You want to wear a head covering? Go for it. If that's what you want to do, fine. If you want to, if you want to draw lines at the King James only, hey, that's, I, don't, I don't really care. That's, that's important to you. Do it. Go for it. They're just things that don't really matter. They matter to you, and that's good. Alcohol use. You know, we'll debate all that, but if, you know, there's some things that you have to leave to an individual's conscience, and that's just Maybe by their tradition, the way they raise, preference, or whatever, and I think we respect that, but we're not going to divide over these things. All right, was that helpful? Uh, it was to me, and maybe we can unpack these, all right? I think sometimes people doubt, and they get off into these secondary issues. I've had people come to me struggling over the seventh-day Sabbath, and I want to say, stop. That is, you know, and you try to walk them through Scripture, because somewhere they've picked up a paperback book somewhere that have told them every, or they'll come and they don't want to celebrate Christmas, so they don't want to celebrate, you know, that, I mean, if you've been around for a nanosecond in Christianity, you know there's just all sorts of just wild and crazy stuff out there. And again, it may be important in some respect or whatever, but don't allow any of these things to become these wedges. You know, be able to have some discernment over what is essential, what are some things that we're just going to disagree about, and what are some things we just say, you know what, if that's what you want to do, fine. It's not, it's not a heaven or hell issue, all right? Fifthly, prioritize keeping the essentials. But there's a fifth principle, and that's persevere. Now, stay with me a little bit in this. I just I hope I can explain what I'm trying to persevere in working through your doubts with the faith you still have. What I mean by this is that when we go through periods of spiritual doubt, work outward from your faith to what you don't know, not from the backwards of what you don't know to try to prove what you do know. You with me? So work through your doubts with the faith 
and the things that are solid. And I go back to that 1 Corinthians 15, those things of first importance. Let me give you an example here, and I hope I'm not twisting Scripture. I don't think I am. I just, as an example, it came to my mind when I was thinking about this. And it's in John 10, John chapter 10. I think I have it on the screen. And the context is Jesus has uh, gone to the temple, and uh, of course, Jewish crowd, the crowds were gathered around him. And just prior to verse 37, if you look, on, if you look a little above that, he, this is where he said, the Father and I are one. And you remember what the reaction of the religious leaders were? They wanted to stone him. They wanted to kill him. So that has just kind of transpired. And so Jesus says in verse 37 of John 10 from the New Living Translation, listen to what he says to those who are ready to attack him. He says, don't believe me. Don't believe me. Don't buy into any of this unless I carry out my Father's work. Verse 38. But if I do his work... Believe in the evidence, talk about his messianic identity, believe in the evidence of the miraculous works that I have done. Then he says something very interesting. Even if you don't believe me, this is what I I think what he might be saying. He said, look, you may not totally be able to buy in that I am the Son of God, that I am God of very God. Okay, but just start and say like Nicodemus. Remember what Nicodemus said when he came to Jesus at night? Nick at night, verse 2 of John 3. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one else can do these signs that you do unless what? God is with him. Did Nicodemus know everything? No, he he was coming with a lot of questions and a lot of doubts, wasn't he? You remember Nicodemus was a Pharisee, but not just any Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. That was like the Supreme Court. He's really high up on the the totem pole. I know mixed reference there, sorry. Uh, (laughs) But he acknowledges that, that, look, Kind of what Jesus was saying, if you can't totally believe me and all that, I mean, even the disciples themselves didn't quite understand all that Jesus was, did they? He said, back to this principle, start with what you can believe and work out from there. Does that make sense? Six, not only to persevere in working outward from what faith you do know versus what you don't know, but the sixth principle is purpose in your heart to doubt your doubts. Say, I'm going to, every time I have a doubt about something, I'm not going to necessarily take that in and accept it. Remember hearing an old preacher talking about, not letting doubts in. If the doubts start knocking on your door, don't let them in. The problem is they got a key to the back door. They come through the window. They come through the air ducts. <laughs> I'm trying to lock them out, but they find a way to wiggle in that house. Purpose in your heart to doubt your doubts. Why should we give our doubts a courtesy 
that you don't give your faith in what you do know. But we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna park with what we do know instead of saying, God, let me say it this way. There's times people pastorally, and they will you know, come and they want me to help them work through a particular situation, maybe an untimely death with a child, whatever it is, suicide, it could be a lot of different things. And I've just, instead of back in younger days where I felt like I had to answer everything, I'd say, you know what, I can't really give you specifics of why, because I don't know. But there are some things I do know, and I know these really well. And I know that God loves you, God is holy, God is just, He is righteous, Genesis 18.25 said, Shall not the judge of all the earth always do right? I know who God is. And I trust God. And I'm just going to encourage you, like a lot of unanswered things, to leave it and let it rest in a holy, perfect, righteous God. Because you see, the problem is, isn't always a lack of info. It really is struggling, and the tension is, do we trust God or, we, or do we not? It's unbelief that we wrestle with. And I would say, and this is a good place to put it in too, don't forget the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. This is not an endless quest of intellectual curiosities, don't neglect the role of the Holy Spirit. We've been given the Holy Spirit. Remember Jesus said, it's better that I leave because instead of me just being with you and around you, the Father will send the Spirit when I return who will not be around you. He will be what? In you. And the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. He said, that's better, right? It is better. John 16, 13, Jesus said in teaching about the Holy Spirit, it says, however, when he, the, Holy, the Spirit of truth, notice that, that he's the Spirit of truth, has come, what will he do? He will guide you into what? What is his role? What is his job? He will guide you into all truth. So when the day is done, the Holy Spirit has an assignment to guide you in truth. And so we need to rely on the Spirit. And the Spirit works by his word as the main way that he guides us in his truth. And the last principle, the seventh principle... is prohibit. Now save this one for last. Because sometimes this is the first go-to when somebody's struggling. Oh, you're struggling with doubt? Well, hey, how about quit sinning, okay? And maybe you wouldn't doubt so much. Okay, see ya, next. Sometimes Christians say dumb things. I've said dumb things. Sometimes we just assume that because a person is struggling with doubt, that there's some 
dark sin in their life. You know, and that's why I didn't put that number one. Saved it to the last. But let's not necessarily leave it off of the table because there is something to be said for that. I was thinking about, the remember, Job's friends. That was kind of the track they went on. Well, Job, it's obvious you're having all these troubles because there's some sin that you're not confessing. Remember those guys? Those are friends that, you know, you don't want to rely on. But if you're a Christian today, hear me. If you're a Christian, okay, and, and you have the assurance of the Spirit of God, you're a follower of Jesus, your sin that separated you from you and God has been forever forgiven by God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You're a Christian. You're living in forgiveness and fellowship with God. That's a one-time, forever, eternal transaction that, that is just true whether you feel like it or not, okay? So, so make sure you hear what I'm saying. But even as Christians, the Bible is also clear, while it's equally clear that our sins are forever paid at the cross, the Bible is equally clear that as Christians now, full of the Spirit of God, we will still have to deal and battle with remaining sin in our life. And the Bible talks about the sins of the flesh and and heart attitudes and actions and all those things. But we're not doing it now just out of a grit and a willpower. We're doing it now with the power and reliance of the Holy Spirit. Titus 2, somewhere in the beginning there, speaks about how the grace of God has appeared to all, and the grace of God, we can put the Holy Spirit in there because He's the Spirit of grace, teaches us to say no to unrighteousness. I like that. The Holy Spirit is teaching me, and if you've been a Christian for any length of time, hopefully you have been sitting at the, in the classroom of the Spirit to allow the Holy Spirit to teach you and to guide you. And so that's equally true. But, the, but, but what we need to consider if we are walking through those periods of spiritual doubt is are we cultivating the Spirit or are we, have we allowed ourselves to cultivate and re- remaining sin that we refuse to let the Spirit handle and deal with in our life? Remember Galatians 5.16 says, Paul says, So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives, then, then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. You see, when I, you know what, it, you know, you ever have your internet spectrum? God bless spectrum. I won't say anything derogatory about spectrum. <laughs> you know, whatever it is, you know what ha- is the frustration when you get offline? You can't connect. Sin, sin gets you offline. It doesn't break necessarily the relationship permanently. But it gets you offline in relationship and fellowship. Remember last week when we were talking about Cain and Abel? You remember what God told, uh, told, told uh, Cain? He says, why are you downcast? Why is your countenance dropped? That sin is waiting at the door. Remember we talked about that word is like a, like a wild animal waiting to pounce, like a predator. So don't you know that, that if you do what is right, you'll be blessed? 
Well, we're not doing right to earn God's favor. Only Jesus can earn God's favor and has earned it for the believer. That's why uh, in our study in Colossians, it's called complete in him. We are complete in Christ, right? But we're talking about this ongoing sin, and there's sins of commission. There's sins that I willfully do. I know it's wrong, but I commit those things in spite of what God's Word says. And let me just make a sidebar. Some of the most troubled and, and, and discouraged people I know are people that are trying to join what God has clearly written in His Word that is forbidden, and they are trying to justify a particular life and their choices based upon something that's clearly enunciated in Scripture that God says is wrong, and yet they want to somehow take that and still live a life that is contrary to the clear written Word of God. And some of those folks I find are the most miserable and mad and angry people because you have this battle and this war that you can never join together. Well, I know the Bible says, but you know, I just feel. You know, I've heard, you've heard what I've called that. I call that the Debbie Boone theology. Remember Debbie Boone? Made famous that song, You Light Up My Life. And the famous line says, How can it be wrong when it feels so right? Some of you, some of me. We are guided by that. And those are acts of commission, but they're sometimes sins of omission, just things that we know to do and we don't do them. Here's, here's the thing. We'll wrap it up this way. We are to prohibit. The principle is that we are to prohibit habitual sin from taking root in the soil of doubt because it will push us and wedge us. Satan will use it just like the Lord said to Cain that it, sin is like, like, like that predator and it will dive us deeper and deeper into estrangement and separation. And this is a time when we need to lean hard into God. We need to think about Psalm 139, verse 23. The David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Father, just shine the light of Christ into my life. I don't want anything there. I don't want anything to be, to be messed up in my life. I, Psalm 26, verse 2 through 3 says, and look at the New Living Translation, says, put me on trial, Lord. <laughs> put me on trial. Put me in the docket. And cross-examine me. Test my motives and my heart. We don't like praying prayers like that because we don't necessarily want to hear the answer, do we? Test my motives and my heart. Look at verse 3. For I am always aware of your unfailing love. We're not putting ourselves before one who, who does not love us, has not covenantally committed himself to us. Putting yourself in the examination room of God himself is the safest place you could ever be. You know why? Because God will never lie to us. He'll always lead us into truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Go back. It won't be on the screen, but if you have your Bible still there, the latter part of that passage in John 20 with Thomas says, after eight days, 
His disciples were again inside. And then, he, then Jesus appears, and in verse 27, Jesus, Jesus speaks to Thomas. I don't know what Thomas was maybe thought, but like he heard what I said. Verse 27, then, and Jesus said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Doubt ultimately is overcome by the abiding presence of Jesus. Because there will be times and seasons, not every, like I said, not everything will be extinguished in your life. And sometimes, not sometimes, but the presence of Jesus makes all the difference to navigating through those uncertain waters where we don't necessarily know what's ahead. But aren't you thankful we know the one who does know what's ahead? Aren't you thankful that we do know the captain of the ship and that he knows, even though I might not know? And look at what, what Thomas's response was. Jesus spoke personally to him. Jesus spoke directly at him. And what was Thomas's response? He worshiped him. He said, my Lord, my God, not our Lord, our, no, this is personal. He had an encounter with Jesus. Yes, he touched his hands. Yes, he put his hand in his side. But more than that, he met Jesus in a transformative way that he was never the same. And you know what's really cool is we have no record of Thomas. You know, we unfairly labeled he's a doubter, but there's no record he ever really did it, doubted again. In fact, until he was arrested and murdered for preaching the gospel. And as a result of Thomas taking the gospel into India, many were brought to faith in Christ. And he, as a martyr, like all the other apostles, and now today, and you can look it up and see a picture of it, there is where he is buried in India, in Chennai, which is in, uh, in India, the city of Chennai, that where he is buried, that around the 16th century, they built a cathedral over where he is buried. Funny how God can use doubters, isn't it? Now, you thought I, thought, uh, you thought I forgot about Billy Graham, didn't you? Let me just conclude that. Remember his friend Templeton challenged him? How could he believe all those outdated things like the Bible, Jesus dying for sin? Billy Graham, at that retreat where he was questioning his faith, or really questioning whether he could accept the Bible and its authority, went out into the woods and found a tree stump. And he knelt and prayed and opened his Bible. And he found himself praying through his doubt, something that he had never done before, and it was kind of uncomfortable, he said. And he said, Billy Graham says in his biography, he recalled praying, Oh God, there are many things in this book I do not understand. There are some areas in it that I do not seem to correlate even with science, with modern science. There are some things I just... But then he felt the Holy Spirit meet him in a personal way, and Graham said, Father, I am going to, he's making a choice, I am going to accept this as your word. 
and I'm going to accept it by faith. I'm going to allow faith, listen to what he says, I'm going to allow faith to go beyond my intellectual questions and doubts, and I will believe this to be your inspired word. Because it was the Bible that was the issue he was struggling with. He said, after he prayed, he recalled his eyes with tears, and he wrote, I sensed the presence and power of God as I had never sensed it in months. Not all my questions were answered or were ever answered, but I knew a spiritual battle in my soul had been fought and won, and thank God it was done, or millions would have never heard the beautiful gospel of Jesus. Allow our spiritual doubts to be used by God to be the pathway that God leads us into a deeper understanding of who He is. Don't park there. Use it as the process that God will use in our life and others' life if we will allow Him to do it.